Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff co-hosting the show along with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, who are here with me now to kick it off. Hey, guys. Let's kick Let's kick this episode off right. Who is on it? This week, uh, it was a long time coming for me, this, this episode. The guest is Jonathan Goldstein, the host of the podcast Heavyweight. You guys know that I love Heavyweight. I think it's one of the most compelling and moving things that anyone puts out in media anywhere. And I actually resisted trying to get Jonathan on for years because I thought delving into like how he created the show would somehow spoil the magic for me. But the last season was so good that I could no longer resist. And let me tell you, it did not spoil the magic for me. If anything, it enhanced the magic talking to Jonathan. It was really, really fun. I think there's one other reason, Aaron, that Evan never had Jonathan on the show, and it was because he wanted to avoid having to say that Heavyweight is his favorite podcast, even though you and I have hosted other podcasts. He just didn't want to say that to us, but Heavyweight is definitely Evan's favorite podcast. I assumed as much. Uh, I'm, I'm also a fan of Heavyweight. Heavyweight did an episode about my friend Steve Marsh's family, which I highly recommend. I don't know the title of that episode, but it's uh, it's really great. So I look forward to this. Uh, we are brought to you uh, in partnership with Vox Media, who help us produce the show. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. And now here's Evan with Jonathan Goldstein. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm all right. Now you're visible. Yeah, I am visible and um, also realizing that I'm dressed like one of these guys who's left alone to man an Arctic research station all by himself <laughs> and has gone mad. But I felt I was wearing a sweater over this and I thought um, having to stop to take off a sweater seems more suspect in a way than like stopping to put on a sweater. Mm-hmm. Like start without a sweater and then build, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That that's That's a narrative arc, right? That's storytelling. Yeah, that's that's experience at work right there. So welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thank you. Um, you had this, this American Life episode from a while back called Plan B, where you talk about working as a telemarketer in Canada. Yeah. And first, I want to know how you became, obviously, the story goes into that. But can you tell us how you ended up as a telemarketer in Canada? I think uh I didn't have any I didn't have any skills. Uh I didn't have any prospects. I wanted something with flexible hours because I wanted to become a writer and I was you know thrilled to be able to make my own hours, work part-time, uh not have to do any manual labor and uh work nights so that I could sleep in and write. Hmm. 
So so that that was ideal. I think I had a neighbor who was doing it much more successfully than I was who told me they were always hiring was a thing too. And you were selling you were supposed to be selling newspapers or I was selling newspapers, yeah. Selling newspapers, selling dreams, selling myself. <laughs> and do you think looking back that I I'm just thinking about the shows that you do now and the people that you have to call out of the blue and was there something in there that was training for what you eventually ended up doing? I, I wonder, I, because, yeah, I, I've talked about this with my team, and um, they're a lot younger than I am. And I wonder if it's a millennial thing. Like, some of them feel a little nervous about making phone calls. I don't, and I wonder if that's a part of it. Maybe I'm just like a telephone tough guy. Um, it, it, there's something about... Yeah, there was always something about talking to someone on the telephone that didn't really feel as though it it was real or it felt pretend in a way. It, or, or maybe it just felt like no like I was safe from harm, they couldn't punch me, I guess, which mm-hmm. emboldened my personality. Uh and and th- these calls were automatically dialed, so they were constantly just pumped into your headset. So it wasn't even something that you can control. It was just an onslaught of people. And maybe Maybe it kind of inured me to it, but I, I also like talking on the telephone and I, and I have still a couple of friends that I can do that with, but that seems like something that's dying a little bit too. And this is like, this, this is a little bit of my theory is that because of that, maybe that's why a lot of these longer, not your podcast, of course, but other, you know, like three, four hour po- long podcasts where you're just kind of hanging out have become so popular because people aren't talking on the telephone and making small talk in that way, you know, and it allows mm. them to kind of like enjoy that experience from a safe position, you know, like where they're kind of just eavesdropping. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is something that we used to do, like, especially when you had the old, like one phone in the house and then was, I would like occupy the phone, just chatting with people. Yeah, and there would be a lot of dead air, and there would be a lot of like playing each other music, uh, watching TV together, falling asleep together. Yeah, you working as a telemarketer, so you could write during the day. And there are many people in the world who take this kind of job. I think the name of the, the This Market Life episode was Plan B. This kind of like, well, I'll do this as my day job or night job as I pursue my dreams. Who actually end up just doing the day job or night job in perpetuity. So what pulled you out of that and into the world that you were trying to get into? Like, how did you move from that into actually doing audio journalism? Yeah. I mean, it, it, it didn't come about, you know, none of the writing that I was doing was gaining any traction. I was doing spoken word in Montreal. I was sending my, you know, poetry and prose poetry and you know, yeah, I don't even know what to call it, um, to wherever I could and not even like big places like the New Yorker. I mean, like just, you know, Canadian zines and really couldn't, couldn't get any traction. And, and I felt like that was going to be my life and that felt okay. You know, if I could just work as little as I could pay a very low rent and, do what I loved, which was come home and write and feel free in that way. That would be okay. And uh, someone from the uh, Canadian Broadcasting uh, Corporation, from the CBC, came to watch me do some spoken word and got a kick out of what I was doing. 
which I think hinged on the fact that I thought I was, I thought from the depths of my ignorance that I was doing some serious poetry, but it was kind of laughable. It would make the room laugh. And I think this producer from the CBC found it funny and invited me to do an essay on a local show. And I did that. And uh, it led to getting a summer radio show on the CBC. And I had a friend who was the, uh, young editor at a very old newspaper in Canada called Saturday Night, and his name is Paul Tuff, and he was a, a contributing editor to This American Life and was, mm -hmm. you know, a part of its early years and um, figuring out what that show was going to be. And he knew that they were looking for a producer, and he encouraged me to send some of the tapes of my stuff to them and I didn't know very much at all. Like I, I didn't, you know, it was different days. I didn't really know how to edit tape. I didn't have necessarily radio aspirations. But once he told me about This American Life, I started listening to it. Uh, in Canada, the only way to do that was on, I don't know if you remember, Real Audio. <laughs> yeah. They had a really good website. And I would listen just, I just made my way through the archives, listening to every single episode and just loved it so much. And weirdly... Some of the stuff that I was doing I, during this this summer radio gig that I had, which was called Road Dot Trip, it was sort of like a celebrate. It was in the '90s, and it was like early days of the internet, where they sent me the 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 conceit of the show was they were going to send me across Canada, uh, and I would do an episode in each of the ten provinces, and they sent me with this uh, digital camera, which was like the size of a shoe box that took actual floppy disks and you could put like one or maybe two <laughs> photos on each disk. And they sent me with some recording devices and uh, I was able to send my audio back over like a 56K modem. So I sent a couple of these episodes into This American Life. And in retrospect, in re-listening to them, as you know, when I sent them in after hearing This American Life, they they shared something. Uh-huh that, you know, even though I, I, I didn't know the show and I was working just in a kind of vacuum, like there was something there that in retrospect, I was able to see like that it was a good fit. And I think they saw that too. And they, there must've been a leap of faith for them because I was told afterwards that it was a very awkward job interview, hmm. you know, in which I would say something and then there would be a long silence and then Ira would say something and then there would be a long silence and then I would say something but evidently, we were both completely comfortable uh, with that arrangement and talking <laughs> at that cadence. And so I was hired, and it was very exciting because it was just my my it, it was my first real job. And when you say there was something, you felt like there was, must have been something in what you were doing, these road trip recordings that was similar to what This American Life was doing and trying to do. Can you at all pinpoint what that something is or was? Yeah, I think it was, you know, now it's so ubiquitous, but I mean, back when This American Life started, I mean, there were no blogs. The idea of like just being personal was sort of, you know, not talking in that broadcastery voice. Mm. You know, now radio voice is considered the way that This American Life sounds, but it was something very different in the beginning. And there was one particular moment, I think, that uh, it was, it was, uh, Ira and Julie Snyder, who interviewed me. And I think there was one moment in one of my stories that they really liked where I was describing getting a speeding ticket while driving through Alberta and thanking the 
police officer for the ticket. And that was the thing that really burned me was that I thanked him for this ticket. And mm-hmm. it was like just a small, stupid, neurotic moment. But I think they liked that, you know, like it, it had something of the personal self-deprecating comedy or something, you know, it was like a seed of something that I would end up expanding into a lot of essays uh, for the show, you know. Did it feel like you were at the beginning of something that you felt like, this is what I want to do. Like what I want to make is radio stories and this is going to be my career. Like you had latched on to a dream or were you just kind of take like, here's a job. I'll, I'll, I'll see what this is all about. No, it was a little of both. I mean, like I developed, I didn't, like I said, I didn't have radio aspirations, but it was just a good, it was a good fit. I remember I had a therapist at the time who was pretty much the only person who was like listening to my stuff and it was because she was being paid, you know, and, and I would come in there with new things that I wrote and she would say that, that, um, it, it worked better with the way that I read it than when she read it on the page, you know, and, Hmm. and, and that stuck with me. I think, uh, there was something about the combination of my reading it and the, the writing itself that worked in its favor. And I, I was slow to realize that. I think initially, like as much as I loved the show, and I really did, it was just magical to me. And I loved it in the way that I loved going to magic shops when I was 11 years old and discovering new coin tricks and things like that. Like it really, well, I, I felt when I went, when I was called in for this interview to go to Chicago for the day from Montreal. And it was like one of the few times I'd even been on an airplane and I left very early in the morning. And I was just so excited to be at that place. It felt like, you know, going to Mad Magazine or something when you're, when Mm -hmm. you're like a 14 year old. And, and I felt like no matter what happens, I mean, this is great. This is something. And there wasn't really, there wasn't much of a something in my life. You know, there wasn't really much. So that it was just super exciting. And I think eventually I realized that it was my forte. I think in the beginning, I felt like to be a real artist or to be a real writer, I should be writing prose. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've, I've written prose, but I, 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 I was, I wrote a novel. I wrote a novel, like, uh, what you might call an experimental novella mm-hmm. that was put out by this experimental Canadian press, uh, that had like a thousand, a thousand edition run. And, it was just weird and kind of, uh, I don't know, like it was, I don't even know how to describe it, but, but I, I'll say this, like when I met my wife, like her parents were like, oh, he wrote a book, we should read it. And she was like, no, 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 don't, don't read it. I mean, it's just, I had this idea that the way to become an artist was just to put down every single embarrassing thought that I had, put them wall to wall, end to end, uh, until I filled like a certain amount of pages. But the cool thing was that the book came out when I just started working at This American Life and Ira read it and really liked it. And that just was such a boost, you know, it made it all worth it. And and I think after reading that, I think I'd been at the show about a year and was pretty much just producing other writers and reporters. And mm. at that point, like he just, um, he really gave me a chance to to write for the show. Like he asked me what I was doing on my weekends and I wasn't doing much. I I was just, I gravitated towards this bathhouse, this Russian bathhouse that was in my neighborhood. And he was like, well, maybe you can write about that. And I did. And that was the, that was the first story that I did on the show. I eventually, like I, I realized that this is what I excel at. And I think, you know, there was peace in that. 
your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath, then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Did you feel like you kind of knew what your voice was when you were writing for audio? Did you conceptualize your voice as I can write funny and like lean into that? Um, so when I was doing that first summer radio show for the CBC, the way that I learned how to edit tape was I was sending in the raw audio to my producer who was assigned to me. And he was like a serious man, a very nice man, but he was doing like serious documentary work at the CBC who was just handed me. And, you know, he'd send me to a powwow or something like that. And I would be kind of goofing around with the people I was talking to. And then he would send me a cut or I would hear a cut and there was no jokes. It was just all very serious and newsy. Hmm. And I'd say to him, you know, what happened to that part where, you know, I was like asking for the bathroom and I couldn't find the bathroom. And I was like, I really needed to use the bathroom or, you know, whatever dumb stuff. And he was like, oh, you mean that stuff where you're making an ass of yourself? <laughs> you know, and so he felt like out of the kindness in his heart that he was saving me from myself. But that was when I learned how to use editing equipment and I could sort of like keep that stuff in. So I knew that stuff was entertaining to me. But at a certain point, like when I first started doing heavyweight, the things that were entertaining to others, to my producers, that was very exciting to be able to perceive myself from without, you know, from their perspective. Like I remember there was one moment where I was talking to my to my wife and I was getting kind of nervous and fumbly and I dropped the tape recorder on the floor. Uh-huh. And and that was the kind of thing that I probably would have left on the cutting room floor. But my producer was like, no, that's hilarious. And that's so nice, you know, it's so nice when you're working with people who who get you and, and, you know, and enjoy you and could see things that are funny about you that you can't see, you know? Well, before we get fully into heavyweight, you also had this show in Canada, Wiretap. Yeah. And I was listening back to some of it. And there's this one that's like, I don't know, well known is the way to describe it, but I think among fans, it's well known, called Other People's Problems, this episode. Okay, yeah. Do you remember it? Oh, you'd ha- you'll have to refresh my memory. There were ele- we did eleven seasons, twenty six episodes a year for eleven years. Yeah, maybe you should describe the conceit of that show real quick. Ooh, okay, the conceit was basically <laughs> um, monologues and phone calls with my friends and family, but it kind of expanded into just you know conversations with people that I found interesting. It it walked the line between fiction and nonfiction reoccurring characters, you know, like my friend Howard and Gregor and uh, Josh. Um, yeah, it was just kind of an odd, an odd show. I don't know. How would, how would you describe it? I think that's, that's a fair description. I mean, the, the, like melding fiction and nonfiction, that to me was the interesting thing, like listening back to them. I had sort of forgotten that aspect of it. I like, I couldn't tell what was fiction and what was not. And maybe at the time when I was listening to it a little bit more, I, I would have been able to like see those markers in different ways. Or was it intended that you wouldn't necessarily know if it was fiction or nonfiction? 
I think it was, and eventually it became kind of problematic because people started to, because we started doing, you know, true stories too, and people were assuming that they were false. And initially it just seemed to have a show like this sandwiched in between the news and, you know, other things that were just straight ahead felt fun. But then it kind of like, in some ways, yeah, it was working against us in that things that we, I think I did one story about how my identity was stolen on Twitter. Uh-huh. I had this Twitter imposter that I confront, I, I locate him and we have this extended conversation and people assume that it was a joke, but it wasn't. And I felt like, ah, oh, man, this, I really shot myself in the foot because you're using a different part of your brain. You know, it's more, it's more incredible to know that it's true. Um, yeah. so yeah, so it, it, sometimes it worked in our favor and sometimes it just didn't. And what you see, you did it for 11 years. What led you to, to end that? Or did someone else decide to end it? I think it was a little bit of both. Um, I think I wanted to try to do something new. Um, my friend Alex was starting Gimlet. I had moved to New York. The idea of working with friends and trying something different was very appealing and also, I think like the CBC just never really knew what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, a little, a little bit of both, probably. Well, the the one episode that I was going to refer to yeah. is this this one called "Other People's Problems," which there's a segment of it where you have a like a conflict resolution specialist, and you take calls from people, and the conflict resolution specialist is sort of telling them, you know, this is how I would approach solving a problem or giving them advice basically they're in a they're in a dispute with someone and it occurred to me listening back to it that it it's actually a little bit of what heavyweight is in some ways it's not conflict huh. resolution but it had the same flavor to it like someone calls up with a thing that just looking for an external person to resolve uh-huh so did that sort of thing seed the idea for heavyweight but if you don't remember it maybe not uh, other things come to mind more uh, as kind of like blueprints, but that's interesting. Can I ask you, maybe you don't know this, it Was so it was not played for laughs. It was pretty straight ahead? It was, there was a little of both. And it wasn't fictional. It, it, this was real. Well, like, I, yeah, you don't know. I don't know. Boy, this is the I problem. I don't know because it was the same episode that had a body language expert where you were kind of sitting with them in the park and analyzing people's relationships, which was fictional or it seemed like it, because it was fictional. Wow. I have no recollection of this. Uh, is it possible I was doing it with, do you remember whether the person I was doing it with was a guy named Misha Globerman? Mm. Oh, that is him. It is him. Actually, that was him. Yeah. He does conflict resolution. Like he does these workshops called how to talk to, it's, some, it's called something like how to talk to people about stuff. Or how to talk to people about difficult things or something like that. And he's very good at it. Uh, it's telling, you know, because I don't think that was my strongest suit. That's probably why I had a guy like him come in. And initially, like with heavyweight, I was just really stumbling my way through, you know, just trying to create a space for people to work things out and trying not to make things worse. You know, in retrospect, when I think back to the stories that sort of felt like they had the uh, the seed of what heavyweight became, I think of some early This American Life stories. Mm-hmm. I did one called uh, What I Should Have Said, 
in which the premise is that I record all of my interactions over the course of a day because I find myself always regretting everything I say. And so I record the conversations in order to pour over the tape and troubleshoot and kind of like say all the things that I should have said if I had the wherewithal. Mm -hmm. And eventually at the end, you know, come to the conclusion that it's, it's quite enough to live through these experiences once. You know, no one needs to relive them twice, even if it's to get it right or something. There was another episode that I did about helping a friend locate this voice message that had kind of captivated the Columbia campus when he was an undergraduate in the late 90s, <laughs> where it felt like it was just a, you know, a small moment from his past that he obsessed about. And it turned out like it was this very big and meaningful moment from everyone who attended the school that year. They turned it into this musical for their end of the year show. And uh, yeah, it just took on a life of its own. And it was sort of like that, the, I guess, the origins of like just making a deep dive into the past in order to excavate something and go on a quest and, and, and have some rapport between me and the subject and that kind of thing. How deliberate was that when you said, okay, when to start a new show, was it that direct that you said, you know, let's look at these examples and say, what if we did something like this, but more, more elaborate, more longer? No, no. I mean, it would have been so much easier. Um, it took me a long way to get to that simple place. Uh, and in fact, I had a lot of conversations with my wife about like what the show could be. And there was ideas that Alex Bloomberg had, one of which was like, he he really was sort of he was supportive in the sense that like he just felt like whatever i wanted to do was would be okay one of the, the ideas was like jonathan goldstein walks into buildings where i just go into buildings and knock on doors and see what's going on <laughs> um you know uh, another one would be like where he sent me to the airport with an envelope a sealed envelope that revealed where i would be going you know sort of like that naked and afraid show except mm -hmm. like where i'm not naked <laughs> um but yeah, like to, to once I, I kind of looked at the common denominators of all the stories that I gravitate towards about, you know, having to do with regret and obsession and return to the past and like a kind of morbid nostalgia in some cases, like it, it, it seemed as though there was a common thread to, to the point where I remember my wife who was working at This American Life at the time told Ira when he asked her what the show was going to be about and she told him the premise, um, he said, oh, so it's going to be basically like every story that he does, you know, which was true. And it took me a while to realize that like there was a certain kind of common denominator, that there were certain stories that I gravitated towards. And how, how would you describe that premise now? Of heavyweight? Yeah. Um, I mean, it always sounds kind of boring, but um, initially in the first season, stories were retrofitted onto people that I found interesting in my life. Like I thought, mm. you know, my father is a good talker and, you know, is someone who is just naturally entertaining. And I thought, well, what in his life could we go on a quest about? And, um, you know, I knew that he hadn't spoken to his brother Sheldon in like 40, 50 years. So that was the very first episode where we, we set off. We spent a weekend in Florida where the two of them my father Buzz and his brother were able to just talk about what went wrong. And it was different than the stories that I had always heard about it. And it was, you know, and they worked out something that, that weekend and it was kind of scary and exciting. 
and I guess that was even before I knew exactly what the show was going to be. And I was just sort of like leaning into the things that I found interesting and, and a little scary. Hmm. I guess it has to do with the idea of time being a good story editor in the sense that like if something, if you're still hanging on to something after decades and decades, there's something inherently compelling about that. So most of the stories were like a return to some distant past, uh, something that's been eating away at the person, something that has stakes. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I'm not doing, this is not a very good elevator pitch. I guess the way that we, we put it is that if there's some unresolved question or, you know, it could be very, something very simple, something that you still wonder about after many years, some lost relationship or whatever, that um, something that you've been putting off for a really long time that you want to get done will help you with it. And how quickly did you start to get sort of inbound questions from people that you didn't know? So when you start out, you've, it seems like you're sort of sourcing it from people that you find interesting that will have good stories to tell friends and your family. And then when was it after the first season that it sort of flipped towards you start hearing from people who have just, just know that that's what the show's about? Yeah. Yeah. So the first season was just mostly like, you know, my father and, you know, very old friends and personal stories of mine. And then, you know, you run out of those pretty quickly. And then we opened it up in the second season and it was daunting in the sense that like I wasn't taking myself very seriously initially and I liked working with my friends and family because I, I think I was a little more comfortable with them. And then in the second season, people were writing in with real problems and they were looking at me as a kind of expert. And it was like terrifying, you know, to, to meet with these people and see the look of um, hopefulness in their eyes, you know, turning to me. And I realized like, I needed to step it up and kind of like, even if I didn't really feel like an, an expert, an ex, like an expert in an invented field, you know, that doesn't really exist, um, then I have to kind of take that on with seriousness. And it kind of, um, things got more serious in a way. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of developing a love or, you know, a compassion and care for, for strangers. So that was kind of a cool trajectory, you know what I mean? To start as strangers and by the end to kind of like really feel for the subject and to feel kind of um, like they're really letting me in to their lives. You know, this is real stuff. Well, this gets to like some of the questions that I most have wanted to ask you actually for many years, but I feel like I've almost been hesitant to because I don't want to know what the magic is, but I do want to know what the magic is. The first thing that that makes me wonder about is you must have to say no to a lot of people. Like there must be people who come to you with that hopeful look in their eyes. And then you have to say to them, I'm sorry, I, I can't help you. I usually don't see their eyes uh, initially. Um, I'm shielded from their eyes, uh, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's largely emails. And um, there's a lot of pre-interviews that my team, you know, conduct. Uh-huh. I don't know. I guess we've gotten better at, at, at figuring out what might have legs, what stories and, mm -hmm. and, you know, and who might be good to work with. But still, I mean, it's just, it's always worrisome. You kind of like, you have this whole model built on like, okay, we're going to have a certain amount of stories each season, but you just don't know, you know? I mean, I think like we've gotten more confident that, you know, we could kind of, there are things that have felt very small in the beginning that, that, that grow as we work on them. And sometimes that feels like just a feat of, of good luck. But then are there ones that you, cause sometimes 
you pursue a trajectory of trying to help someone figure something out. You make a lot of calls. Like, let's here. It's one example. It's yeah. a very recent episode about this family that feels like they're cursed, and it obviously goes on over a long period of time, like a full year. Mm-hmm. And there must be times when it feels like nothing. It's not working out. You're not getting the thing you want. Like, how often do you have to discard a story like that, or do you feel like you always can land it somewhere? No, not always. I mean, sometimes they just sit on a shelf uh, because the one person that you need to talk to you will not talk to you and it's maddening. Sometimes you just feel like maybe you're, you figured out something that the subject isn't quite figuring out and that could be kind of uncomfortable. Like you don't want, you know, listeners to hear something and know something about the the subject that they're not knowing, you know? Hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Some of them seem like they're going to be pretty straight ahead. You're going to get from point A to point B, and maybe it'll just be a short episode. And then all kinds of stuff happens in which you realize at the time it's so stressful, but then it ends up making it so much richer than if it, and more difficult to produce because you really have to make something of it if you don't get exactly the thing that you were looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, like I know, you know, to call back to my, the episode about my dad and his brother, there was a moment during that weekend when I legitimately felt like this was a bad idea and I should have stayed out of this. And that was scary, but it ended up, you know, feeding into the episode and making the whole thing a lot more interesting and dramatic and, and compelling. Um, so yeah, it's sort of, it's a tightrope. And sometimes like the best stories are the ones that really resist telling, or sometimes, you know, ultimately that you can't even tell. I'm thinking of like, there was one story where I had a conversation with a woman named Justine, who the premise of the story, and it seemed, you know, playful and straight ahead was that she kind of wanted to fact check a lot of the things that her father had told her all during her childhood, a lot of tall tales. Mm, yeah. And I thought, you know, if we find out that some of them are true or some of them are false, it'll it'll all be interesting in a way. But it, during the course of that, like she said something parenthetically, like off the record. She was like, when I was a little girl, my dad told me that he wasn't really my brother's father. That, that my brother is um, from my mother's previous relationship. And she's like, but I can't talk about that. But that was something that she was curious about that her dad had told her. And I felt like that kind of eclipsed everything else. Mm-hmm. And that almost seemed like it would be the pass key to unlocking the truth about everything else. And it felt like to ignore that piece of it would somehow feel false. And so we couldn't do the story, I, I felt like, until maybe there came a time when she could talk to her brother about that. And eventually she did, and it became like a very... Um, sprawling story that that was the only time where it was the first time that we've ever done this where it was a two-parter and one and the the second part of the story was really given over to her brother and his life so that was really cool but i mean prior to that i mean the story sat on a shelf for over a year and do you do you sort of pick it up every few weeks and say all right now i'm going to spend a day on this like is it systematic or is it or is it sort of feel yeah, it's not systematic. I mean, in this case, it was sort of like I just wanted to keep in touch with Justine. And we would, you know, through occasional emails and stuff like that and see if anything had changed. And then eventually, like, a lot of a lot of things started to change, you know, with her father's illness and eventual death and her brother's discovery of his real father and what that revealed, uh, 
yeah, there was like, it just a lot of, of very unexpected places the story ended up going. And I'm interested in some uh, really specific things that pop into my mind, like yeah. process things when I'm listening to the show. So oftentimes you are helping someone and and making calls and then you end up on a call with them speaking to the person they've been seeking. And in those moments, I'm always wondering like how much has it been explained to them what's going to happen? Like, do they generally know you're going to be there? It's going to be recorded. It's on a podcast. Like, is this all kind of like in advance? Like, is this okay if he's on? Like, how do you arrange those situations without making them unbelievably awkward? Well, they are often unbelievably awkward, <laughs> um, as any listener to the show will tell you. Um, you're wondering about the people on the receiving end, like who are getting this phone call. Yeah, well, both. I mean, yeah. I'm worried about the people on the receiving end. Like, how often do they say, why is this guy calling me? Like, why don't you call me? Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Why do you need this guy? Yeah. And sometimes we'll step back and we'll be like, okay, like if this is going to squelch the deal, then yeah, then we're going to mix ourselves out of it. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes, you know, it gives the conversation parameters and people like that, but sometimes they don't. And we just, we have stepped back. More often than not, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, happily amazed that people are willing to do it. In some ways, it almost feels as though like, you think that, oh, this is such a crazy call. But then on the receiving end, it's almost like, yeah, it's the call that they've been waiting for in a way. Mm. Um, I mean, a crazy call. I was doing a story about my first therapist and some of the advice that she would give me and her affect. And I thought, you know, as I got older, I thought, wow, that was pretty crazy. When I was younger, I just kind of I hadn't had much experience and I thought, okay, I guess that's what therapy is. But as I grew older, I realized some of this stuff was like legitimately eccentric. <laughs> and so I thought maybe if I could talk to some of her other clients, because she had died years earlier, she was an older woman. Um, maybe if I can talk to some of her other clients, I could get some insight into that. And then the only other client that came to mind for this was I had one day in the waiting room seen this guy come out of her office who I recognized as a professor of mine. And this was like a professor that I had like over 30 years ago uh -huh. that I had no real relationship with or anything. Um, and I didn't even remember his name. I just remembered that he had a mustache. And so I made a whole series of phone calls to try to locate him. And eventually I was told that he was living in Jamaica. I was given a phone number for him. And I thought, what an insane call to make to someone to say, hey, 30 odd years ago, I think I might have seen you in my therapist's <laughs> waiting room. Do you want to talk about it? And this guy was just so laid back about it. I was like, I was like stumbling my way through it. And and he was like, oh, yeah, Dr. Muller. Yeah, she was pretty crazy. And then he gave me the number of another friend of his who um, it was a patient of hers and, you know, and then it was kind of like a, a chain where everybody was giving me the numbers of other people. And I ended up like being able to uncover her, her past, you know, what her life was in pre-war Germany and the family that she came from. And it was just, you know, went in all of these incredible unexpected directions, but it started off with that initial insane phone call, you know? Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I don't know, maybe when something is just so out of the ordinary, you're just using a different part of your brain to receive it. 
maybe something happens where you kind of shift into like the mode of which you're feeling like you're in a short story or something. Uh huh. I don't know. Like if you got a call and, and someone, you know, it started off with, this is a really weird phone call probably to receive, but I'm going to, you know, ask you about blah, blah, blah. It feels a little like, like a sweepstake or something. Yeah. Or does it feel like a scam? I don't know, but it, it feels unusual. Well, scams, they're not that clever about, like they don't, uh, I don't know that they would say this seems like a really weird phone call to receive. They would just start the weird phone call. Like that's how scams in my experience work. Right. So I'm trying to like, Hey, I'm normal. I'm just like you. I mean, I think, I think maybe that's where the telemarketing training comes into play where I would just try to keep people on the phone as long as I could. It was like (laughs) a personal challenge to me, even if they weren't going to, you know, end up buying the newspaper, I would, it was like rodeo writing or something. I would try to stay on the bull as long as I could and be like, Oh, wait, wait, one more thing. One more thing. You know, like a kid just trying to stay up a little later, you know, it wasn't very artful or eloquent, but like just trying to keep them on the phone. Maybe there was, maybe there's a little bit of that to it also that helps. But I I would still think that there would be a lot of cases where you'd have a story and someone would say, I have this thing from my past, but I have no idea what happened to this person, et cetera. And then you would come back and either have to say, well, we couldn't find the person or yeah, I called the person up and they said like, I don't want to talk about it. But are you telling me that doesn't happen that often? It happens. It, I shouldn't say it doesn't. I, I kind of, I guess I wipe it from my memory. I was just remembering the other day, I called up a, someone's hypnotist <laughs> who had successfully stopped them from, I think, smoking like 30 years earlier or something because I wanted to get this hypnotist on board to help this subject with a new problem. And they were just like, why in God's name are you calling me? And just had, you know, would have none of me and hung up on me. There was another occasion, I love this story, where this woman called up and she didn't really have much of a relationship with her father. And no one really had a nice word to say about him. And Mm. uh, she was at his funeral and she just remembers this man weeping unconsolably, inconsolably over his coffin. And the detail that she remembered was that this man only had three fingers on one of his hands. And it just felt very cinematic. Mm -hmm. And insanely, my producer Kalila found this guy by somehow it was like she found that it was an insurance claim for the loss of some fingers or whatever I know it was crazy and I thought oh my god this is incredible we'll call up this guy he'll be able to talk to this woman about her dad and this guy would just would not have it I mean the first time I called him it rang like 15 times it sounded like he had just emerged out of a bathtub was soaking wet and angry and did not want to talk to me. And it didn't make a difference to him how incredible it was that I had found him and what a small ask this was. He just would have none of it. And I thought, well, maybe if he hears the woman's voice, maybe if we call her, you know, him up with her, he'll, if he has a heart, you know, mm-hmm. and nothing would work. And, hmm. uh, and then, yeah, there was just no story because of that. So I think I finally gave up. He threatened to kill me, actually. <laughs> And that was like, okay, I think, I think we've gone far enough. That's the, uh, that's the simple answer to when you put one on the shelf for good. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, it's, um, yeah. But then there's, there are so many cases when I'm listening to it where I just cannot believe the direction that it's taken. So I want to offer up one example, which is from the last season, this, the show, uh, another roadside attraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so people who are listening to this, going to spoil 
a little bit or maybe a lot. So pause this and go listen to it. It was my favorite episode in a long time, maybe ever. And can you describe the premise of that episode? Oh, boy. I was hoping you were going to describe it. Um, okay. It was uh, a woman got in touch. Uh, she remembered she lived in this small town in Texas, and there was nothing really around. And, and one day, this little bookstore popped up near her house, and it was just like magic. Uh, and it opened up a whole world to her. And she would just go there every day. And it was where she discovered some of the authors that ended up kind of like making a big impact on her life. And then as magically as it appeared, it just vanished. And she always wondered about what became of it and what became of the owner of that bookstore. And that was the beginning. And it just felt like, oh, okay, this might be a small little thing. But it ended up becoming like a very sprawling thing. So when you're kind of reporting that out, you and the producers if you'd done the first half or so of it where she finds out the woman who actually was behind the bookstore, there's a man who's the clerk of the bookstore who she remembers, but then there's a woman actually behind the bookstore and you find someone who was very close with that woman. Yeah. And like, that's an incredibly intense story. If it had just been that mm -hmm. I would have said great heavyweight episode, but then it turns and there's a whole nother story about the man who was behind the counter. And when we're listening to it, are we following your journey of figuring this out? Or do you kind of, maybe you knew about the man while you were reporting. And then when you sit down to tell the story, you kind of lay it out in the most uh, elegant way. No, in this case it was, and this is my favorite kind of thing where it's just sort of like, you're like in the passenger seat and you are enjoying this ride and not knowing what's going to happen as much as the listener. And those, yeah, sometimes you could feel that. And in this case, yeah, it, it's sort of the rule, I guess, of luck. I guess you can call it luck in the sense that like, it was a very simple episode in that it was only made up of three different interviews. Um, and everybody just turned out to be a very good and, you know, vulnerable and emotional talker. Mm. And we could not find that guy, the guy who she remembered as working behind the counter at the bookstore. And we only figured out who he was in talking to the woman who is the good friend of the woman who owned the bookstore. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, it just kind of laid out the way that it did. But then the woman who owned the bookstore had died, and I'm truly spoiling it here, so truly, if you have listened to it, you got to listen to it. And the the man who was behind the counter was her ex-husband. Yeah. And then you had to tell him what happened to her. He didn't know. He didn't know. So no. did you know going in that he might not know that she had died? Yeah, we didn't want to assume. We thought maybe, you know, you would think he would somehow, but it turned out they didn't have any mutual friends. So, yeah, we told him she died. We did not tell him how she died until I spoke with him mm -hmm. because it just seemed like a a heavy thing to... I mean, either way, it was heavy, but it seemed especially heavy to put it into an email. But what was kind of remarkable about a story like that is that it had that Rashomon sort of feel like where it's like that first part where you're saying like, oh, that would have been a satisfying episode. You only were getting it from one perspective and then to have it from his perspective afterwards, uh, which contradicts in some 
way, the first story that you heard or adds to it is like really rich. You know, it's like, uh, it really makes it deep. And it also, it feels like a, a magic trick when you hear it, because it's almost like, I can't believe that the story played out this way as you're reporting it. And I don't mean this in any way in a pejorative sense, but like, is there any sleight of hand in telling it? Because like in this example, the woman who goes to the bookstore when she's a kid, she kind of describes the guy, like there's a guy behind the counter and he was always like sitting behind the counter and he was very nice and he was very helpful. And, but she never says that he was black. Yeah. And she doesn't, that actually becomes like a crucial part of the story because his experience of living in this Texas town is centered entirely around that and what happened with the bookstore and everything else. Like that's what makes it such an incredible story. But that when I'm listening, mm -hmm. partly I'm like, did she not remember that detail or did she say it and you left it out for the benefit of the story? No, she didn't say it. And mm. what I, what we did include into later drafts, and this was kind of like a revelation. It was something small and it's the benefit of having good listeners. Um, there was a conversation with her where I asked her, I said, oh, how come you never, you know, we were asking you, or I was asking you what this man looked like, anything that would help us in our search. And we had that conversation. I asked her if she remembered and she said she did. And she wasn't quite sure why she didn't bring it up. And we ended up taking that out huh. in service to having it come up conversationally with him. Yeah. And, and, and that was pretty late in the game. That was like about possibly like a couple later versions in a lot of times like very small changes are made that really reframe an entire episode it you know in the in the like the the 25th hour oh yeah well i'm glad you took it out they were right whoever said that. yeah right. yeah this was um this was caitlin kenny yeah um are there moments that you know will make people cry I guess you don't ever really know. And sometimes, you know, you're working on it so long and you play it for someone else and they have a strong reaction and it like it reawakens that in you where you're like, oh, you know, like, you you know, you because you, you you sort of lose sight of that a little bit. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess you, you're, you're never really sure. You You have a pretty good idea. I think like playing things for my wife is always like, that's the best litmus. Like, I feel like if Emily, oh yeah. When I think about like, if Emily cries, <laughs> I know it's like, it, it will make the nation cry. Well, that seems to be, I mean, that's a very common response. It seems of people on social media or other places to the show. It's like this show consistently makes me cry. Do you try to balance out the season with like criers and non-criers so that they get categorized? Well, we try to stagger them, I guess. Um, and sometimes we don't have any choice. They just have to, you know, come out as they're ready. But uh, yeah, like ideally within an episode, you know, we like there to be moments of sadness and then funny moments and kind of get that mix right. And then in the season two, yeah. Like it was, it was you know, the one that you mentioned, the one about the 500-year curse, that family that felt, that Irish family that felt they were cursed. Mm -hmm was a fun one to have at the end of the season because it just felt like it was it was more goofy, you know, and, and we had quite a few really heavy ones. So that felt good. Yeah, the, the British woman who's in charge of the the collection of, what was the last name? 
uh, Elliot, the the Elliots. She was the Elliot clan chieftainess. Yeah. And she hated me so much. <laughs> but we were a wonderful comedy team, I feel like. Like, not since Margaret Dumont and Groucho <laughs> has there been such um, such repartee. <laughs> well, speaking of that, I would be remiss if I did not ask you about Jackie, your friend mm-hmm. Jackie, who I had discovered I had not seen this the first time around when I was looking back at all This American Life episodes, makes an appearance first in a This American Life episode. Yeah, uh, yeah, that you did a partially about her, where you talk about her, mm-hmm. and then makes an appearance at the beginning of every show. How did that come about, and how do you think about that as part of the show? Well, initially, I had an introduction to the show for the first episode that was going to be untenable, like it. The, the the it was very high concept the idea was i would start every episode riding on the g train uh-huh. and the, i have a friend who sounds a lot like the stand clear the closing doors please guy and he would play the voice of god emanating through the pa system on the subway train and we would have a conversation uh, that would lead into the episode and it would have like this i don't know like 70s sitcomy magical realist kind of feel to it or something and it just was too labor it was like producing a whole other podcast (laughs) so at the last minute i just called up my friend jackie to tell her about the show and people seemed to like it and so yeah yeah that just became the um the running gag of my calling up my childhood friend jackie and having her just hang up on me having little patience for my shenanigans (laughs) And nowadays, do you, it's not clear to me if you tape every time you call her or you're like for three weeks, you're like, I'm calling every day and whether she knows you're going to call or not. She doesn't know I'm going to call. Uh, well, maybe sometimes we schedule it. She knows like her, her approach to it is she tries to be as unentertaining as possible so that <laughs> she will not be giving me anything usable, but she always just ends up breaking and getting angry at me anyway. So it's okay. I don't know. It. I'm, you like it. I like it. Okay, because it seems as though, yeah, I, I like it too. Uh, most people that I think I share a sense of humor with like it, but some people don't, and, and it seems like it's kind of divisive, and I wonder about it. But um, I don't know if we're going to do it, continue to do it, because I think she really doesn't want to do it. Mm. Well. Like, I, I think she I think she enjoys it, but I don't know. Like, if I'm to take it face value, maybe... Maybe I should just let the poor woman lead her life. I mean, she's a doctor. She's, you know, she's helping people. She's doing serious things. She doesn't need this. <laughs> I did wonder if it was kind of like a litmus test for the for the listener, you know, because it's not, it's it's different than any, I can't think of a similar introduction. Like once you know the show, you can kind of make the connection of why it's happening, but it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't tell you what the show's about or lead into it's It's completely non sequitur for the new listener. Yeah, I know. And it could push people away too, I suppose. You know, they could just feel like this isn't for me. So I don't know. Why would I do that? Why put something right right up top that, you know, might might kind of like turn people away? Because then when you're in, you're you're in. You're and in for life. You hear it, it's very comforting. And if you change it, I bet you'll hear from a lot of people who say, 
that's how I knew the show was starting. Like that was my thing to like get me into the space to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was um, our newer producer on the show. Mona was like listening to a longer version of the Jackie opening where I like, it wasn't fully cut. It was like a minute long and there was three choices. So you could kind of see the wires. Like it was just us talking and Mona was like, she like realized, Oh, Jackie really doesn't want to, she doesn't like, she doesn't have time for you. Like it's not a bit, you know? And I was like, yeah, well, yeah. And then that kind of gave me pause. It made me feel like, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's time to hang it up. But yeah, she's a complicated woman, Jackie Cohen. Do you think that everyone has one of these questions? Like, do you think everyone has a heavyweight in them? I think so. I mean, I know that I have them and the idea of having someone sweep in and be able to pick up the slack and help me with it is a very appealing idea. So I think an, uh, an aspect of it is wish fulfillment. I'd like to try doing an episode where like, it's kind of like the crisscross strangers on a train, you know, where like someone helps me and I help them. Uh-huh. That would be kind of fun. I, I think it is predicated on that idea. I think the ones that people sometimes, you know, over you know, at dinner parties or whatever that, that people will pitch to you aren't necessarily the right ones, the ones that they see. But sometimes just out of conversation, you'll see one. And again, it's, it's that thing about like the stories that resist telling. Like it's a lot of times the stories are about procrastination. You know, someone that's been putting off something for 20 years. So you, when you try to get them to do it, they're just stuck. And, you know, yeah. it, it, it becomes an untellable story. Uh, other times, yeah, it's just it's mortifying to them and they don't want to enter into it for that reason. So I think, yes, people, people are carrying around wishes for second chances, a chance to reset or undo whether they'll share it with me or on a, on a podcast is another question. And do you feel weighed down by the accrual of solving other people's problems? Yeah, yes and no. I mean, a, a part of, I guess, the good thing about jumping from story to story is you could kind of keep it light in a way. Uh-huh. I mean, I know people who have done stories with people that they've written about and they've kept in touch, and I admire that. I think, wow, like that's the mark of a good person. And I don't know. Like I, I guess my tendency is to sort of feel like the weekend that my father and Sheldon and his brother had together, you know, like that kind of like, we'll always have Paris sort of thing. Like people ask if Buzz and Sheldon keep in touch after that weekend. And um, it, it almost seems like an unimportant question in a way, you know? Yeah. It's like, they'll always have that weekend. You know, are they best buddies now? No. I mean, you can't really repair the past to that extent, but they'll call each other on the occasional birthday, which is more than they would have had. So I don't know, I guess I guess what I'm trying to say is like my feeling with the subjects is like, we'll always have Paris, you know? I don't know, sometimes I feel like I don't want to intrude, you know? Like I don't want to be popping up in their inbox all the time and everything. Like maybe it's a part of what makes it special, you know, that we had this, we had this moment together. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Or wait, let me, let me, let me say, how about this? You're welcome. Ha, ha, ha.
you can you can use whichever one you feel is, works best in post. That's it for this week's show. My thanks to Jonathan Goldstein. The most recent season of Heavyweight is out. You can listen to it on Spotify. Now, after we talked, Jonathan also wanted to make it clear that Heavyweight is not just him. He was representing the collective work of some amazing producers. And for Heavyweight, that's Kalila Holt, Stevie Lane, and Mohini McGauker. Similarly, his previous show, Wiretap, was the work of Mira Burt-Wintonic and Crystal Duhame. Podcast hosts are mere puppets of the true geniuses that you rarely hear on the microphone. Similarly, this show was edited by Jackie Sajiko. Megan Valley did our show notes. Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer are my co-hosts. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thank you as always for listening, and we'll see you next week. You're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply.